Brad, how many computers did you have in your house in 2010? Let's see, a gaming desktop and a laptop. And I think that's it. How about you? That was probably me too. I might have had a server. I think I probably had a server by then, but it was like a really low powered, even for the time, Atom processor, you know, home server type deal that was basically just like an SMB share. Sure. I didn't have anything beyond that. I had a router, yeah. which I guess you could argue is kind of a computer, but not not much else. It was it was probably running Linux of some sort, although you may not have known that. But yeah, like even even two computers at that time felt a little bit extravagant, but boy... Little did we know what was on the way. Yeah. How many computers do you have running in your house right now in 2023, Brad? Gosh. Well, okay. I've still got a desktop. I've still got a laptop. Now I've got this big Linux box over here, but also at least four Raspberry Pis around here, maybe more. And if if you want to get into do containers running on the Raspberry Pis count as computers, because then we're up to like two dozen. Yeah. I'm, I'm in a similar, like I have the, the desktop, the streaming machine, the NAS, my kid's computer, my wife's computer. And then about three, two, three Raspberry Pis at any given time. They, they just keep multiplying, right? The Raspberry Pi has become so indispensable. I have thought about adopting a policy of just having an extra on hand at all times. I mean, not super feasible right now because they're hard to come by for supply chain reasons, which you will hear about shortly. But sometimes a project urge just strikes and you need a Raspberry Pi. <laughs> it might be nice to just be able to reach into the drawer, the drawer and grab one. Well, I, I just set up a, um, a Home Assistant Yellow, which is a Raspberry Pi compute module based project that freed up one of my old Pi 3s. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I was really excited because like I would have more Pis in the house right now, except for you have not been able to buy them for the last two years reliably. Yep. So That's the thing about the Pi, though, it's always useful. You can never have too much Pi. That's what I say. Welcome to the FOSPod. I'm Will. I'm Brad. As always, this week's episode of the FOSPod is brought to you by Google Open Source. They bring all the value of open source to Google and all the resources of Google to open source. You can find out more at opensource.google. This week on the FOSPod, we're talking to Evan Upton, co-founder and CEO of Raspberry Pi Trading Company. And, uh, well, I mean, he's just a fascinating guy, yes, it turns out. And, and the Raspberry Pi Foundation. That was something I learned uh in the course of this interview was the distinction between those two, but dude, raspberry Pi, it's like perhaps as big an institution in the maker world, the open source world, the manufacturing. Yes. Uh, I mean the range of contexts in which these, uh, adorable little fruit flavored single board computers are used is kind of endless these days. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Cause it's, we were talking about this before we started the show. I can't really think of a project that, you know, in the normie non-techie world, people are pretty much completely unaware of, mm -hmm. but like in our circles, everybody knows about this and it became such a ubiquitous, important part of the computing ecosystem in, in like less than a decade, really. Cause it, yeah. it like the, the first Pi boards launched in 2012 and there honestly wasn't a whole lot you could do with them if you couldn't write code in those early days. And then projects started building like the, the fact that this single board computer existed that was 20 or $30 meant that projects would start tailoring their kind of single service computer projects specifically for them. And it would, whether it was like an arcade machine emulator or an old console emulator or a router or a, um, a DNS server that strips out all advertising from the internet. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Print servers, 3d print servers or, or interfaces, um, home assistant, you name it. 
Yeah, r- uh, r- uh, network VNC machines. Smart mirrors. Wait, smart mirrors? I haven't seen Wait, that one. Dude, if you never... <laughs> there are a lot of smart mirror projects involving Raspberry Pis out there. They look so cool. Oh, man, I just put a new new medicine cabinet in. I should do a smart should, mirror in there. You should, you should slap a Raspberry Pi and, and the guts of an old monitor on the back of that mirror. Yeah, the, like the Pi is such a formative kind of gateway into open source for me. Like, I'm pretty sure the first Model B I bought was the first, like, real experience I had with Linux, honestly. Because like you said, those early projects, I mean, I wasn't writing code. But those early, early projects that were available for the Pi, you kind of couldn't set up without at least touching a bash prompt, right? And I don't think I had done a lot of that prior to getting my first Pi. So, you know, a a big deal for, I think, a lot of people's first steps into the world of Linux and open source. Yeah. So for folks who don't know, the Raspberry Pi is a single board computer. It runs ARM processors. There's four main models and a bunch of little sub models now, maybe five main models. I think the zero probably counts as its own thing at this point. Yeah, yeah. And you can use them for all sorts of things. There's two things that make them different. We talk about a little bit in the episode, but one is that they're out pandemic concerns aside, typically always available. So they're not batch products. They're products that they just continuously manufacture. You can go to your local electronics store and, and get one. They still make the original yeah. out for over a decade. They are committed to making that thing for several more years. The other thing is the, what used to be called Raspbian and is now called Raspberry Pi OS is a fork of Debian that's basically designed explicitly to run on these boards. And there's an installer that you can download for it that runs on windows and lets you put the right OS files on a flash drive or a USB thumb drive or, or whatever, you know, whatever it is you happen to need that lets you basically jump straight into the appliance mode for the Linux setup for these devices. You don't necessarily have to start from first you install Debian and then you apt get install your, you know, whatever project it is you want. And then you have to do all the configuration stuff. It just works. Yes. Um, yeah, that's really what it is. I think this thing has reached a critical mass. Like it's picked up that level of community support that you don't have to be a Linux graybeard. Like there's just endless tutorials and tools and guides and all kinds of stuff out there to ease you into this. To the point that often the projects say, hey, the easiest way to set this up is to just buy a Raspberry Pi, install it on the Raspberry Pi. Don't try to run it in a container on a normal yeah, Linux installer or whatever. <laughs> yes, unless you're a loon. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's often as simple as here's our image. Here's how to flash it to an SD card. Just put it in there, press the power button. You're good. I think that's all you need to know about this interview. Let's just get into it with the first time I heard about a Raspberry Pi in person. Evan, uh, I went to a lot of maker fairs in the early 2010s, and the best part of that was always getting to interview people who'd made a fascinating stuff. But I, I usually close those interviews by asking people what they were excited about at the maker fair. And in 2012 or 2013, I remember I went to one maker fair and five or six people within the first half day said, oh, there's this little computer the size of an Arduino. You got to check it out. It's really cool. And I'm curious, like that was the moment I was like, oh, I should be aware of this thing. I got to learn about this. I, I'm curious if there was a moment for you when you realized the pie was something that like really filled a need, like this this personal need that maybe first nerds and then just normal people, it turns out, had. Yes, we had. I mean, obviously, this isn't something that we'd ever imagined was going to sell a lot of units. It's the thing we were building to teach to encourage kids to come to Cambridge. And so our idea of success was, you know, our idea of success was a thousand units and our idea of wild success was 10,000 units. I think that, <laughs> I think the point where I realized that we were in trouble was in the autumn of 2011. So we had 
we'd been working on it since 2008. And we'd sort of told people in May uh, of 2011 that we were doing it. And we'd, uh, we'd done this by going to see a guy called Rory Kethelan-Jones, who's a BBC technology correspondent. And uh, he took a little video of, uh, uh, of one of us holding up a very early Raspberry Pi prototype and talking about what we were trying to accomplish. And he got this vast number of YouTube views for his video. He got you know, 600,000 YouTube views in a couple of days, which was kind of cool. But it's very easy to you know, want to apply a very large discount factor to, to that number to measure interest. So, yeah, we thought we were fine. And then we spent a lot of time in 2011 getting from the uh, sort of point. It was, it was the kick that we needed. It was the kick in the pants that we needed to, to actually go from noodling away at this thing to actually trying to turn it into a real, a real project. Um, so we were spending 2011 going through that process of productionizing Raspberry Pi, um, but we, we didn't imagine that we had 600,000 people who were interested in, in, enough to buy a Raspberry Pi. But the point where we realized that we were in trouble and that they were, we were going to sell a lot of these and that we would have to scale the organization to support that was when we put an operating system image online in about November of 2011. And it got something like, and this was a, um, I think that this was a Fedora-based operating system. And it had something like 50,000, and you could only run it in QMU, right? There was no hardware out there, so you could you could run it in a modified QMU. We had 50,000 downloads of a very badly broken operating system uh, for a computer that didn't exist yet. And that was the bit where we realized that there was that this somehow this had tapped into um, it, it had found in that kind of big parameter space of the things people are interested in. Uh, we, we'd accidentally dropped a product into a completely empty space where a lot of people were standing. It was empty of products, but very full of people. Yeah, that's probably that. The idea that you could get a whole, I mean, I mean, so in those early days, it, it was novel to have a Linux ARM machine, right? Like finding compiled binaries and stuff for Linux software. It wasn't difficult, not right, but it was unusual, I think, still then. And like there was an inflection point around the time the second Raspberry Pi came out that that seemed to stop that all of a sudden everybody had pi compatible binaries for everything and all their all their repos yeah i th- i think it was certainly when we started i guess probably 2009 2010 when we were first working on what would become the Raspberry Pi platform? ARM Linux itself. The, I mean, the kernel. Uh, the kernel was an unusual thing, right? I can't remember because it existed for a long time outside the tree. I guess it had maybe been merged by then. But ARM Linux was outside outside the tree for a long time. It had probably been merged, but probably fairly recently. There were various distros available. But it was yeah, it was all a bit. Everything was a bit special, uh, and how you built things. I remember you know uh, you know trying to find a compiler, uh, trying to find a pre-built GCC to bootstrap yourself was and to build your kernel wasn't trivial. And yeah, there's just kind of a moment you know if you draw that line between I guess that point, the kind of 2010, and probably um, you could say maybe the launch of the M1. Max was probably the point where ARM as a client architecture uh, kind of emerges completely into the mainstream. There is that point somewhere in the middle there where most, where, where large numbers of applications were starting to provide binaries, generally Raspberry Pi binaries, generally binaries for this slightly unusual, the Raspbian world, right? So that's ARM 7HF, so hard float 
um, arm uh, Debian, but built to remove the V7 specific instructions so it could run on the ARM 1176 uh, that we had in Raspberry Pi 1. Th- those sorts of things started to appear in kind of 2013, 2014, 2015. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to suspend your humility for just a second here. Would you, would you say the Pi was the first kind of primary driver of uh, ARM adoption in Linux, or were there other solutions out there concurrently? I mean, of course, yeah, Beagle, I, I would say Beagle, the Beagle board um, predates us, probably the first broadly available. I guess it didn't have the continuous... One of the interesting things about Raspberry Pi, and, and of course, we've been challenged with this over the last couple of years, uh, but for most of its life, one of the interesting th- things that's characterized Raspberry Pi is it's kind of continuous available, continuous high-volume availability. And that was probably a thing that, that the Beagle board didn't have. It was something which was sporadically available. They would build some and then sell them out and then build some more. But it did, and, and it was yeah, it was probably three or four times the price, four or five times the price of Raspberry Pi, but it did fit that same niche. But yeah, certainly I think we popularized, you know, we popularized it as a platform. Sort of going on to that point about the the M1 machines, of course, we were super happy. We have this object called Raspberry Pi 400, right, which is a Raspberry Pi 4 built into a, a compact keyboard. We launched that about a week before the M1 Max. Now, I grew up with I, not owning, but lusting after uh, Acorn Archimedes, the kind of uh, the original um, uh, ARM, the original ARM computer, the original ARM desktop, and it was kind of fun that we we actually were first back in market by a week. Uh, we were first, after a twenty year period in the wilderness where there were no kind of consumer oriented ARM uh, PCs. We we buy a week uh, were first back in market. Very basic chicken and egg question here because the, the Raspberry Pi's foundation, like the original mission statement, is educational outreach, right? So. Was it a situation of we need to do educational outreach and then through brainstorming you came to, hey, we can make a tiny, very affordable computer? Or was it the opposite of, hey, we can make this tiny computer because the parts and the software are now emerging and then what can we do with it? Oh, yeah, it's... Yeah, it's interesting, right? And it's it's all about how you tell stories, right? Which bit you want to emphasize. I think, for me, it was a coming together of those. It was a perfect coming together of those two strands that there wasn't really a chicken and egg. That I was building little computers, actually quite Arduino-like little computers. So there's this thing that if you, if you search for Raspberry Pi 2006 edition, there's this rather cobbled together looking piece of Veriboard uh, that has an Atmel, so the same uh, chip architecture as, as the the Arduino Uno. It's an Atmel 644, it's got 512k of SRAM, and it will drive a standard definition video signal, and it kind of it bashes, actually uses the microcontroller both to, both to run your code, but also during the display period to bash out video addresses to get this SRAM to drop bytes onto the bus in the order required to, to draw something on the screen. Um, so I was building those things, uh, and I was also a director of studies in computer science at the University of Cambridge, and so I was also experiencing the uh, the, the collapse in the number of young people who are interested in computer science, and we saw this terrible, terrible decline between the late 1990s and the mid part of the first decade of uh, of this century. And so I was kind of exposed to both things. So it was a sort of a natural coming together. And really, remember, Raspberry Pi is testing the hypothesis that we used to have loads of kids who were interested in computers because there were loads of programmable computers in kids' lives, and that when you took those computers away, because you were largely replacing them with games consoles in, in, in a lot of children's lives, the ultimate piece of very powerful non-programmable hardware, non 
end-user programmable hardware. The disappearance of general-purpose computing made the kids go away, and if you bring back general-purpose computing, the kids will come back. Uh, that's the hypothesis we're testing, and it was a kind of hypothesis that was very easy to stumble upon if you happen to be both building little computers and confronting the uh, uh, the, the, the disappearance of uh, of computing among young people. So there's not really a it's a it's a kind of a perfect a perfect coming together of these two strands of certainly of my life. It's funny because because it's it's an idea that has shown up multiple times. You know, growing up in America, we didn't have the rise of programmable computers as much. They they were much less available, I think, here than they were in the UK specifically. And um, it's it's a thing that comes up a lot when I talk to programmers of a certain age. I think from the UK specifically. The UK is yeah. The UK is weird, and it certainly is a place. Yeah, if you look at the the number of eight bit computers, I mean, of course, you know, the United States, you had your Commodore sixty fours, and you had your your Trash eighties, and you had you had a bunch bunch of other architectures, and your, your Apple twos. But if you look at the number of distinct eight bit microcomputer architectures that came out of a country that has a, po- a fifth of the population of the United States. It's just incredible, right? You know, look, you look at the number of architectures that came out of Cambridge, that came out of, that, were, that were developed within five, five miles of where I'm sitting. You know, it's, it's just, there was something about the place that made it a very fertile ground. And of course, many of those uh, companies sold 10,000 units. The two big ones, of course, were Sinclair, uh, who sold about 5 million of their Spectrum product, mostly in the UK, but did have some export success. And then, of course, Acorn, who sold about 1.5 million BBC microcomputers, failed as a computer company, but then succeeded in terms of spinning off this little chip design uh, organization that became ARM. Talking about the the decline in kind of interest in computing among young people that you mentioned. I mean, there, there's this emerging theme in the tech press, the, even these days, that basically says like, oh, you know, kids don't know what a file system is anymore. Like they only know how to type on touchscreens now. Like, do you still think that's true? Or I mean, has your foundation made enough inroads? Are you seeing, are you seeing those, those tides turn through your efforts or otherwise? I think if you, if you imagine there's this scalar, this scalar value that we care about, which is number of applicants to the University of Cambridge, uh, the deadline is uh, the 15th of October, something like that. So on the 16th of October every year, you're presented with a scalar number. That value went from about 600 in 1999 to about 200 to 250 in 2008. And last year, that scalar was about 1,450. So we have a little over twice as many applicants to computer science at the University of Cambridge as we had at the height of the dot-com boom when everyone thought that computer science was a meal ticket, right? So if you if you just look at that number, yes, it, there has been a, a, an absolute sea change uh, over the last 10 or 12 years. And I think Raspberry Pi has had a part in that. I think that the kids who rock up at least have the uh, the good sense to pretend that Raspberry Pi was the reason for this. Um, fascinating for me, thing for me as somebody who, who grew up writing computer games on my BBC Micro and then on my Commodore Amiga uh, and had imagined that the primary use case for Raspberry Pi in education would be software, the vast majority of these people say Raspberry Pi and robotics. So the vast majority of these people are not having a purely software-mediated interaction with uh, with Raspberry Pi. It's about physical computing, um, which means it's very, very lucky. I mean, that's obviously somewhere Raspberry Pi kind of stands out. It's not something that I was super excited. Those general-purpose I.O. pins on a Raspberry Pi, which allow you to do all those kind of cool general-purpose computer, those cool physical computing things. That was Pete, Pete Lomas, who designed the first generation Raspberry Pi hardware was very keen to expose some of the interfacing capabilities of the chip we were using, uh, and I didn't care enough to argue with him. And of course, you know uh, how lucky we how lucky we were both, of course, in the education space, but also that was the the capability that unlocked the industrial use of Raspberry Pi, which really now accounts for the, for the majority of our sales. 
I was going to say the the politics of ports on these kinds of little dev boards is is really interesting because you know you you do you have the entire spectrum now right you have a development board that has a bunch of USB and HDMI and audio outs and all the things you need to make it basically a little tiny either you know single serving server or single serving desktop or laptop or whatever you want but then you also have the compute modules which let you just drop an SOC on a board that somebody else designs and plug into whatever ins and outs that they that they're looking for. And I'm curious how you think about that going now and how it's changed and what you're thinking about going forward. The nice thing with the core platform, so the SBC, the single board computer platform, that's a kind of classic Raspberry Pi, it's still the dominant volume runner for us out of, you know, seven. Obviously, last year was a rather volume constrained year, but if you look back to 2021 when we sold seven million Raspberry Pi computers of all sorts, the SBC product, the single board computer product with its four USB ports um, uh, and Ethernet connector, that was between five and a half and six million units. And so compute module uh, was, was on the order of a million. Uh, on the order of a million units, so the SBC the SBC is, is is the volume runner. We're lucky that we've never had to really make a dis- any decisions to prioritize say educational users of that product or industrial users of that product. They, the decisions you make to make it a great educational product are also also make it a great industrial product because particularly the kind of robustness, the reliability and robustness, they're very important. You know, it's we always say, you know, what's the worst environment? What's the more challenging environment? You know, an, an oil rig or a kid's bedroom? You know, they're both pretty I mean I've got two kids and and uh, I've never been on an oil rig, <laughs> but I've been to some power stations. Um, uh, and, and you know a kid's bedroom is a pretty tough environment. So we kind of there we've kind of always been able to kind of like have a happy medium you know a, 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 you ne- never have to choose one consumer over the other we have now compute module which is purely targeted to the uh, the embedded and industrial space and of course we have pi 400 uh, which is purely targeted at the consumer space so we have put our toes in the water in both directions the nice thing is actually both of those are kind of uh, most of the investments we make, make are at the platform level so deriving those specific platforms from the from the core platform from the SBC platform is actually quite cheap from a cost and an engineering perspective. So we have tried to kind of, we, we put this product in the market, in the middle of the market, and then we just kind of try to feel out what people don't like. And the main thing that people don't like as they go to scale with the SBC is they don't like being enslaved by our form factor choices, right? And you do see people who, you know, you do see industrial, you know, that I, I, I have a, um, uh, I have a keen eye for the appearance of that boat tail, the the two pairs of USB connectors and the uh, and the Ethernet jack. And if you look carefully at lots of industrial products, you see that boat tail a lot, right? It's the sign that someone's built a big object, an industrial object, and there's been enough space inside it. And so their solution for how do they embed a Raspberry Pi is they put it inside. They have a wiring loom or a hat that sits on top of it and mounts their circuitry. The challenge that people have is when they when they try to address more consumer consumer-oriented use cases, they don't want to have to follow our choices about onboard peripherals. They won't have to follow our choices about uh, connector layout. And that's really where the compute module products, they've been kind of a slow burn. We've actually been doing compute compute modules since 2014. uh, And it's really only the last couple of years, and I think with the introduction of compute module 4, that that started to take off like a rocket. So it's still a small part of our volume, but by far the largest growing segment uh, of our business. I mean, given the lead time on new board designs and hardware for especially the like, I think about Home Assistant and and folks like that in in this space. And like, 
the the time it took them to design the board and all that if if as that compute module factor form factor becomes a little more static or stable i i think it'll help those projects ramp and and lean into that kind of stuff faster and and, and better maybe yeah and we've had two distinct form factors for the compute module so until up to compute module 3 compute module 3 plus we have an sodim form factor where you put a jedek sodim socket down on your board and then kind of slide it in and, and clip it in like a memory module um and then compute module 4 we threw that and that's we have continuity of uh, you know we had backwards and forwards compatibility in that space and then compute module 4 we replaced that with this a pair of high density managed impedance connectors uh, that you clip down onto the board and that's definitely been a good choice it's a more space efficient choice uh, it's a more cost effective choice I guess the other decisions I think we made with compute module 4 which were informed by experience with earlier modules and have, have really helped us uh, we put Wi-Fi on the board as an option and a really um, uh, there's a a platform i'm not sure if it's defunct now called android things uh, which is effectively an iot platform built around uh, the the android kernel and bits of the android user land and i had a very revealing conversation with a member of the google android uh, things team in tokyo i think back in about 2018 uh, and he said well look you, you really need to put Wi-Fi on your module because what it means is as soon as you want to go to scale you have to really abandon you either have to do a bunch of Wi-Fi engineering yourself or you kind of have to abandon the Raspberry Pi platform and, and the compute module platform for, for another for another platform so we put Wi-Fi on as an option that obviously eases a lot of people's integration it eases a lot of people's migration from the SPC platform which has integrated Wi-Fi into the the modular space so that was one thing the other thing we did was we massively simplified the the power chain so um, earlier compute modules you have to give them a bunch of rails you have to give them a a 3v3 rail and at least a 3v3 and a 1v8 rail and I think another rail as well you have to put circuitry on your baseboard that delivers those rails and brings those rails up and takes them down in order in the proper order so that nothing latches up. Compute module 4, you give it 5 volts, and it makes its own rails. It has a, a power management IC on there. It makes its own rails. In fact, it gives you the rails back, so it'll give you it'll give you a 3v3 rail for you to use, uh, wow. as long as you don't draw too much power from it. That's been a huge... It, I struggle, I think, sometimes when we're when we're specking and designing these to understand what the pay, where the pain points are going to be, and so we put these these products in the market. And sometimes we find that we've we've done something that people find painful, and it limits the success of a product. That was definitely a, a big a big factor in the success of CM4. So you know we're we're largely an open source po- uh, podcast here. So I'm curious about open source practices, large and small. I'm, I'm curious: is there anywhere in the hardware and software stack that you use open source practices? For example, can anybody contribute to? core parts of Raspberry Pi OS, or, or is it still like a relatively kind of closed or professional effort? Um, so if you think about the evolution of the Raspberry Pi software environment from 2011, 2012, through to the present day, I think what you're seeing is we have this thing that's occasionally that I call start.elf, and that, that, that is sometimes disparagingly called the blob, which is a large closed source software binary that runs on the closed CPUs in the platform. So it runs on the VPU, effectively a DSP. It's actually a fairly powerful DSP, but really these days we only use the scalar core there as a kind of system management processor. And early days, everything ran on there, everything multimedia related ran on there. So camera processing, video decoding, Code, video encode, display scan out, uh, you know, control of the HDMI subsystem. Did I mention 3D graphics? 3D graphics. So all of that stuff ran inside the blob. And then what you've seen over 
the years as a kind of carving away of so where you have an open where you say we had an open fairly famously where you had an open gl api on the arm side what that was was a, effectively a serialization shim uh, that would take the call serialize them pass them over a fifo in down into this blob which would then do what it was told actually that's kind of great for OpenGL because OpenGL is designed for that exact uh for that that's a a very natural implementation style for, for OpenGL, but it wasn't very pleasing to people because people couldn't see what was going on inside and uh, we were very lucky that i think in about 2014 we got permission to release the architecture documentation for the 3d graphics core the video core for graphics core in the chip and we released this and this is pretty unusual actually to have good public document i was involved in designing the core and it's pretty unusual to have good public documentation that still isn't really the case certainly say for the marley cores that you see in a lot of other socs and emma anholt joined my team at Broadcom basically to build a Mesa driver stack around this, using this documentation. And so from probably 2014, 2015 onwards, we did have the option to turn off the 3D graphics element of the blob and use Mesa instead. Uh, and then um, Emma went on to develop a driver for Video Core 6, which is the core that we use in, in the modern Raspberry Pis. And that's then been further improved by Galia. So on the 3D graphics side, you saw us uh, turning off a bit of the blob. And then in the uh, the camera processing side, you saw us turn off the camera processing and move across to Lib Camera. In Display Scan Out, you saw us um, uh, turning off that element and moving across to KMS. And so really all that's left actually is video encode. Um, H.264 video encode still runs inside the blob. And that's really, I mean, it's great because obviously we can leverage the efforts of these enormous teams that have put together these very, very powerful middleware systems. We can leverage some of those element, uh, some of those efforts. We can contribute back to those efforts. If you look at our education mission, it means that there's no there's no point, you know, it's, it's really undesirable for there to be a point where you have to say, here be dragons, don't look inside, don't look inside this black box that does OpenGL. Uh, you really want someone who's sufficiently inquisitive to be able to go all the way down and see when I asked, please draw this triangle uh, what actually happened deep down at the bottom of the stack and what do we think is happening inside the hardware and i suspect that we are you know video encode is 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 still there in, in the blob i suspect probably in the next or next but one generation of, of raspberry pi will get down to a point where there's effectively only clocked power and reset and that's fairly traditional i mean intel chips have the intel management engine in there you know you, ha- you often have some little one most most systems have some little microcontroller which is handling bringing the big cores out of reset effectively uh, and we'll probably get to that point. That'll be really desirable. And hopefully we may even get, when we get to that point, even though there will still be a binary and probably a signed binary down there um, that does those things, you know, hopefully we'll even be able to like publish the source for that binary uh, so people can even understand what that's doing. Speaking of new functionality and adding new functionality to the, to the, to the core and to the CPUs and to the pies downstream, how does stuff like machine learning acceleration and the kind of the stuff that happens in tensor cores and stuff like that, how does that apply to Pi going forward? We, so we've got an interesting philosophy about how we decide what to put into a Raspberry Pi hardware platform. And it's broadly, you can summarize it as we divide, we take the cost of the feature and we divide it through by the fraction of people who will find it useful. So a feature, a $1 feature that everyone uses uh, or a 10 cent feature that's used by a tenth of people 
get the same priority in our decision making. And this is actually a really, really hard barrier for new features to overcome, right? The only really, if you look at a modern Raspberry Pi, the only qualitatively new feature that's in a Raspberry Pi today that wasn't in the 2012 product is is, is wireless, is, is Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. And that's the only thing that gives a you know, $1 to $2 uh, feature, and it's useful to almost everybody. Pretty much everything else. There's no ADC, there's no analog to digital converter on a Raspberry Pi because uh, it'll cost 10 to 20 cents, and we don't think that actually the vast majority of our users need one. And so what we so the philosophy, what that philosophy tends to do is it tends to push lesser used features off onto um, external hardware. And that's it's always been good. That's always been good to us as a, as a decision-making uh, heuristic. And so, you know, if you want to do um, some machine learning on a Raspberry Pi, actually for 1.8 gigahertz A72s is quite a lot of machine learning throughput. So a lot of people's machine learning uh, requirements will actually fit onto the CPUs. If you want to do more machine learning than that, you can go and buy a Coral, say a Google Coral accelerator. They're about 60 bucks. They've got about two TOPs of inference uh, on there. And that applies to lots of, um, that applies to everything from analog to digital converters all the way up to machine learning accelerators. It's been good to us because it's actually created space for other people in our ecosystem to innovate. You know, the fact that we don't try and slurp all of the functionality into the platform means that there is a business. You know, you could start a business selling really nice digital to analog converters that you connect to a Raspberry Pi, and we won't come and drive over you. You know, we won't come and add those features into our platform. It's interesting. Sometimes what's not on there leads to as much kind of learning opportunity as what is, right? Like the original Model B that I bought, as as you say, it doesn't have a DAC on it, and I would First of all, I was like, why does the music coming out of this thing sound like this? But second of all, it was like, oh, so that's what that's what PWM audio is, right? It's like I had no idea that that existed as a concept until I had to work around it because of what was not on that board and had to go buy a little, you know, $5 USB DAC or whatever. And of course, it was wonderful. that was a wonderful learning experience for us because we always kind of knew that you can do better than PWM audio. Well, even if the hardware you have is effectively a filtered pin, you can do a lot better than, than, than just um, piping PCM audio into, into the duty cycle register for a, for a PWM block. You can do all sorts of clever um, Sigma Delta noise shaping stuff, you know, one bit DAC, effectively. Uh, what if it was a hi-fi would be marketed? If it was a hi-fi in my childhood, at least, would have been marketed as a, you know, Panasonic would market these things as one bit DACs, right? Uh, and, and what we've ended up with, you know, if you go back and you run a modern Raspberry Pi operating system on the Raspberry Pi 1, and we're quite proud of, you know, that's kind of like a core bit of our ethos that you can run today's operating system on the 2012 hardware and it, and it performs pretty well. Um, actually, you find the audio quality is pretty good and that's because it's picked up a lot of noise shaping, a lot of fairly alarming noise shaping uh, code over the years. So since you mentioned old pies, I, I, I feel like one of the ways you can tell you're a nonprofit and not a corporation is that you're still supporting decade old products. So I'm, I'm curious. I mean, there's a bunch of questions there. I mean, uh, the big one for me is, you know, uh, until pretty recently, you were offering one 32-bit operating system that ran across the entire product line. And I'm sure like philosophically that was, you know, it's, it's easier to support one platform, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, you finally started offering a 64 bit option for newer models. I mean, has that increased the, the support burden kind of exponentially, or is, is that, is it something you've taken in stride to, to now be having kind of different, different Raspberry Pi OSs? It was a real, it was, it was a real wrench for us having two and we limited ourselves to two. So, I mean, there's another obvious choice, which would be three. So you could have a an ARM V6HF uh, Raspbian, effectively image that ran on Raspberry Pi one and Raspberry Pi zero. Uh, you could have a you could have a um, ARM V7HF 
our RMHF in 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 Debian uh, in Debian speak that runs on Raspberry Pi two, um, and then you could have the the ARM sixty four uh, version that runs on th- uh, Raspberry Pi three and later. So we decided not to do that. So there's nothing. There's no special Raspberry Pi two Cortex A seven um, build. Yeah, it was a bit of a wrench. I think because of the way that the, the Debian world works, actually not too much of a wrench. Um, you know, an enormous amount of effort goes into uh, you know if you you sort of pick. What couldn't we have done Raspberry Pi without, obviously, Debian and the way that Debian thinks about the world? And so that the fact that, that um, a lot of effort goes into making the, the, the system fairly architecture neutral allows us to support two fairly radically different architectures, of course, uh, ARM32 and ARM64, with relatively little engineering effort. Uh, have, you, have you had any coordination with any other kind of operating system groups that are non-Linux? I mean, like, for example, like FreeBSD has been trying to bring ARM up to Tier 1 support recently like I, I tried to install FreeBSD on a pi 2 like three years ago and it was a rough experience like do you have any any contact with other groups that are making efforts like that oh, we have we have sporadic we have sporadic contacts so i think you can sort of divide operating system support for raspberry pi into let's let's say uh let's say four buckets so you've got you've got uh, linux uh, various linux distros you have windows and of course, there are sporadic, uh, sporadic efforts from Microsoft and from the community to make various incarnations of Windows work on Raspberry Pi. Um, uh, some, some pretty successful, some, some, some fairly ropey. You have uh, so that was two. Uh, you have the BSDs, and we do have some light touch interaction with with, with the various BSD ecosystems. Uh, generally, trying to answer, uh, uh, trying to answer questions, and also trying to provide where we can software. That interfaces with the, uh, the the various subsystems on the device, uh, which isn't GPL licensed, because of course they have a challenge that there are various various subsystems where they they can't really take bits of Linux kernel. We're kind of you're close to Linux the Linux kernel drivers being the the reference the software reference architecture, but of course they're inappropriately licensed. And so we, we occasionally do work to try to try to help people with that problem. And then you have other operating systems, uh, and that's everything from, you know, various research operating systems to uh, Risk OS. Of course, you know, we've always liked the fact that you can run the original ARM operating system on Raspberry Pi. Uh, and, and we do have a, a very friendly, a very friendly relationship with Risk OS Open, who are, who are just up the road from us. So to change the topic a little bit, last couple of years have been challenging for a lot of folks with uh, pandemic supply stuff. And I'm, I'm curious, I mean, I think we all follow Raspberry Pi Locator here. So um, it seems like things are getting a little bit better, but I'm curious how you're feeling about where, 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 where you're at and what the future holds and if there's stuff you would do differently or if this was just an, uh, an unavoidable side effect of uh, you know, a worldwide pandemic. Oh, I, I think I think if I had my time again, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I would. Uh, yeah, what what wouldn't I give today for a million? Um, you know, for for an extra million. Well, of any of the Raspberry Pi chips, actually, I mean, certainly twenty seven eleven, which is what we used to build Pi fours. But what would I give for another million of of any of the of any of those chips? I uh, and of course it should have been obvious, right? You know, what, what was what was the core? The core dynamic was. A pandemic happened. Everyone assumed there would be a massive recession. So stopped ordering. Businesses assumed there would be a massive recession. So they went into destocking mode. At the same time, everyone was at home needing electronic equipment to continue to participate in society. And also in most, certainly uh, uh, European, Europe and North America, having their income pr- protected by various government um, schemes and also unable to spend money on services. 
So you have the same income, but you can no longer go on holiday or go to a restaurant. So what are you going to do? You're going to buy consumer durables. And so it was that that pair of transients, the negative going supply transient and the positive going demand transient were, you know, if you if you sat someone down in a business school class and you described the situation to them in those terms, of course, they would tell you what was going to happen. Uh, but at the time when we were in the thick of it, and of course, we were a lot of us were focusing on not getting COVID, nobody called this Nobody called this one right. You know, the big car companies didn't call this one right. Um, so yeah, if I had my time again, obviously I, I would, I would. Yeah, yeah, what would I like? I'd like would, would maybe have liked somebody to talk me through it in business school terms because then I could have spotted what, what what I needed to do. And so towards the end of towards the end of twenty twenty, you see things start to come apart. So you see first blowouts in component lead times. So components that you would expect to be able to get on on twenty week lead times going out to 52 week lead times we were pretty quick in getting uh, in getting orders on in that environment but obviously if if lead times instantaneously blow out by say 3 months in one day it's inevitably going to create a 3 month void uh, in your supply chain there's no way you can get orders on fast enough to fill that 3 months it's just an inter- instantaneous instantaneous hole and it's not like there's parts it's not like you have warehouses full of parts in china sitting waiting to go stuff comes in and it gets stuck on boards and the boards go out right yeah and you have some inventory i mean so you have some component inventory and on any given day you have some component inventory and you have some finished goods inventory and your downstream channel has some some inventory and industrial customers of that downstream channel have some in some inbound inventory, which is your finished product, right? Um, so there's lots of inventory sloshing around in the system. But no, it's certainly not the case that you have millions of units of every component that you need um, for your, yeah. uh, to, build, to build a Raspberry Pi. Um, so you have this kind of, you have this blowout. Then once you get back into a situation where your orders that you've placed that were now 52-week lead time uh, arrive, you end up in an allocation situation. So you end up in a situation where even though you have orders on, uh, you, you don't get you don't get you don't get supplied at one to one ratio because there is more the total aggregate demand exceeds the total aggregate production capacity and so the only thing you can really do is to give everyone a haircut. So that was the kind of inbound situation for us, which has persisted really up to up to the present. You know, up to the up to the present moment, uh, it's a situation which is now improving quite rapidly. Uh, and I think what we said when we gave an update in December was broadly the first calendar quarter of this year is pretty tough. You know, it has some bright spots, and I think if you go on RPI Locator, you'll see what some of those bright spots are. Right now, it's things like Raspberry Pi 3A+. Plus. Uh, later in this quarter, we'll see Raspberry Pi 0. Uh, we'll see a significant improvement in Raspberry Pi 0 availability, which is, of course, kind of cool, because it's still my favorite Raspberry Pi product, uh, Zero and Zero Wireless. So we'll see some improvement over the course of this quarter, but it's still, a, it's still a constraint quarter. Next quarter is, broadly speaking, a pre-pandemic quarter. Um, so you can see next quarter as being one and a half to two million units of inbound uh, uh, inventory across the various components that we use. But because you have backlogs, you need to do better than that. So that's enough to keep up, but it's not enough to, to start to, to start to get back. So I think what you'll see in the second quarter, much better availability, but a continuation of things like single unit limits for uh, consumers uh, and what we call active management for our industrial customers, where we uh, a, cust- a customer orders something uh, and we and rather than just taking their order we go back to them and we actively say to them is that do you really need that many units uh, it's got anti-sales we have sales people here doing anti-sales uh, oh, oh so can i have ten thousand raspberry pies well would it would a thousand raspberry pies each month for 10 months be enough you know because uh, you're trying to detect inventory building what we call, we call kind of toilet roll hoarding in the context of the uh, of the pandemic uh, because that will destroy that that 
that, uh, you know, even if you have a su- sufficient supply, that kind of begging your neighbour behaviour, which is totally understandable and totally defensible, and I would absolutely be doing it if I was, if, you know, if I, if I was buying uh, buying these units. You have to find ways to to help people. Uh, it's not about stopping people doing it. It's about making your industrial customers comfortable that if they don't do it, they'll be fine. That we that we that we'll, we'll look after them. That, that they can disclose their true demand to us, and that we will use that in a good way to help make sure that they don't go lines down, rather than in a bad way to kind of give them a haircut. So you'll see that those, those behaviours will persist through Q2, but it will be a good environment. But it will be a, a heavily managed environment. And then from Q3 onwards this year, we effectively have an unlimited supply of pretty much everything we need to to, to make raspberry pies. That will allow us to catch up on our backlogs and then get back into the situation we want to be in, which is where we don't actually need to touch our customers so much we can just put units in channel the dream with raspberry pi where we were for out of 11 years for nine out of 11 years in the market we've been in a situation where there are hundreds of thousands to millions of units of raspberry pi in channel and if you wake up one morning as an industrial as a a hobbyist and you want 10 you can have them if you wake up as an industrial customer and you want a hundred thousand you can have them and the, that kind of um, law of large numbers averaging effect means that actually not many people wake up on a given day and want 100,000 units. And therefore, you can pull from the channel and it's as if there's an infinite supply of Raspberry Pis. Yeah. You just said that the Pi Zero is your favorite. I'm curious why. I just, it, it's the, you can think of Raspberry Pi as having um, explored another use of Moore's Law. So the sort of classic PC industry use of Moore's Law is to pick a price point and then every, let's say, 18 months, two years, fill that price point up with twice as much compute. And so you get an exponentially increasing amount of compute at a given price. The other thing you can do with Moore's Law is you can pick an amount of compute and you can ride an exponentially decreasing price curve. And you can sort of see Raspberry Pi as as a piece of hardware, having said in 2010, 2011, 2012, hey, what would a 2000-era PC cost now, actually, because of Moore's Law? Oh, it's $35. And that was kind of great. And then we launched Raspberry Pi 2 in 2015. And what did we do? We picked $35 and we filled it with an exponentially increasing amount of compute. We'd actually just gone back to doing what, at a different price point, we'd gone back to doing what everybody else does with Moore's Law. And really, Raspberry Pi Zero, I love it because it's an example of of a few months later, realizing that we'd that we'd conformed and then asking ourselves well what if we didn't conform what if we said let's take the 2000 what what now what does a now what does a 2000 euro pc cost oh it costs five bucks or ten bucks and so i I like it for that and and the projects you get with it are very they're very kind of embedded you know it it shows up in some of my favorite hobbyist projects like the the high altitude ballooning uh, because it's very light Uh, it shows up in some of those projects so i do i do love it and we've sold a lot of them i mean it's been uh um, I, I don't know what the total numbers are, but it's probably three or four million. Uh, out of the 50 million, roughly 50 million Raspberry Pis we've sold, probably three or four million of them have been these tiny little these tiny little computers. It, it lives in kind of a fun spot between like a microcontroller and a full-blown PC, right? Yeah, and of course we've explored with Pico, which came out a couple of years ago, um, uh, which has our own silicon on it. It's the first product that has Raspberry Pi de- de- designed silicon on it. Uh, we kind of then have explored what does the world below zero look like, and you know, we have this four-dollar Pico product and six-dollar Pico W product, just sort of trying to understand, you know, how low can we take, and then, and then the sock, which you can also buy the you can buy the microcontroller from us, and it's a fifty-cent microcontroller. Um, so you know, how low can we take that general-purpose computing mission? 
One of the many things that's always fascinated me about your efforts is how long old models remain in production. I mean, you know, the the Pi 1 and 2, you've committed through 2026 to keep making them. I'm curious, like, when, when the supply constraints really kicked in, I mean, everybody wants to buy the latest and greatest, of course, but, like, there's plenty of hobbyist projects that run just fine on a 3 or a 2, or, you know, my old Model B is still sitting here doing something useful. Did those old models being still in the channel, did that take on kind of a renewed importance when nobody could get could get 4s and, and, and CM4s anymore? Like, were, did those have an uptick it certainly helped that we had access to two process nodes so we had we had core silicon across two process nodes 40 nanometers for the for pi 3 and earlier and 28 nanometers so you kind of yeah being exposed to more process nodes is good if i had my way i would have been exposed to three or four process nodes but yeah two was certainly better than one yeah we did we we saw people migrating in both directions so we saw people driven by month to month availability behavior um so we saw people who were using pi 4 era uh, hardware uh, looking to see whether applications could be optimized to run on earlier hardware we saw people who were using compute module 3 migrate we have a we have a sort of a what's currently a pseudo product called cm4s compute module 4s which is the the brains of compute module 4 in the compute module 3 form factor and that was developed before the pandemic as a way to give people a migration path up to the modern silicon platform without having to retool their their baseboards Um, but it actually ended up doing duty as a way for uh, in the periods when we had better 28 nanometer availability and the 40 nanometer availability it did duty as a as a way for 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 people to get continuity of supply there's a product that it is on our it is on it is a real and official Raspberry Pi uh, product, but it has never really been launched. It is, it's on our website, but it's never really been launched. It's only been used as a sort of a tactical aid to some of our um, uh, as our industrial customers. Yeah, it's been it's, it's it's interesting, and even today, as I say, even today, you, you're going to see us come back into availability in kind of broadly the order in which our products were. Uh, launched. Um, so you're going to see the older, the you know, 3A plus come in, you see 0W come in, and then probably a Pi 4 will be towards the end of the if consumer, unrestricted volume consumer availability. Uh, Raspberry Pi 4 will probably be towards the end of the uh, the transition. Are you are you all in on ARM for the foreseeable future? Do you have any thoughts on Risk Five, for example, which is making a lot of uh, headlines as, a, as an open source instruction set in the kind of the same embedded space? It's very hard for me not to be all in on ARM, right? As, as somebody who spent his childhood drooling over Acon Archimedes, and 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 as a, a former colleague of, of Sophie Wilson, of course, who was responsible for the uh, for the for the design of that instruction set architecture, it's, it's very hard for me not to be all in on ARM. I think you know, Risk Five, Risk Five is an interesting development. People, it's important not to understate the challenges that a new instruction set architecture face uh, in in terms of adoption. There's an enormous amount of accumulated invested engineering effort in the ARM architecture and, and, and the Linux kernel and, and the, the various user lands uh, uh, that run on top of it. Uh, yeah, optimizations, you go go look at go look in the FFmpeg source code, you know, a huge number of neon optimizations for both 32 and 64-bit ARM. Actually, that accumulated base of, of engineering investment pales in comparison to the even more enormous um, level investment in the in the Intel architecture. You know, if you go to some of these places, you find fast paths for everything from MMX to SSE to SSE two onwards, right? A whole you know a museum of Intel multimedia instructions. So, and that's stuff that needs to be replicated in, in the risk five space. It's not to say it won't be replicated there, but it does need to be replicated, and that would be a necessary precursor to us being able to do any sort of uh, risk five based raspberry pi product so i so i'm, I'm very satisfied with you know there, there are you know the arm architecture is a the arm ecosystem 
is quite a good place to hang out. And it's notable that other, quite a lot of other computer companies have chosen to go hang out there recently. And, you know, just as, you know, the Linux kernel provides a, a venue for cooperative, collaborative innovation. So, you know, the ARM instruction set. Uh, and, and, and the various cores that you can license that, that, that execute that instruction set, they, they provide it's a similar sort of uh, it's a similar environment and certainly a similar source of scale advantage. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens with Risk Five. Uh, I think I think in the microcontroller space, those advantages are much less pronounced. Uh, and I think where you do see penetration, and you, I think you'll continue to see penetration uh, of the Risk Five instruction set architecture, is in microcontrollers. I'm deep embedded. Okay, I was going to say, one of the things we talk about on, on the FOSPOD a lot with smaller projects is funding and the organization of the infra, of, the, of, the, of the organization, you know, how, how the business of making these large open source projects works. And I'm, I mean, I think the funding is probably pretty obvious, but I bet there's probably stuff that people don't understand. And I'm curious what the organizational structure is like and what your kind of day-to-day involvement and what, what, you know, what your job started as and how it, what it is now. Um, the, so the funding, the funding is interesting. Um, the foundations are top goes a charity. The, the thing I run is Raspberry Pi limited. So I run the engineering subsidiary of the foundation. And so we do the engineering. If you buy a Raspberry Pi computer, it's designed by us and the software was written, you know, the, the Raspberry Pi specific bits of software written by us and the brand is maintained by us. So we do that bit. Uh, and then we make money and then we give that money. So well, we reinvest some of the money in making new Raspberry Pi stuff, and then we give the surplus money to the foundation that does educational things with it. And we've returned on the order of thirty-five million pounds, I think, over the years to, uh, to to the foundation to fund its educational its educational work. So that's the kind of structure. Where did the money come from in the first place? A handful of us put money in. I think we put in about a hundred thousand. Uh, the founding trustees uh, of the foundation lent the foundation about a hundred thousand pounds between us, actually for a period of very few months. Months, uh, and then those loans were then repaid. So that's the initial capital. And actually, until 2000, until 2021, that was until the autumn of 2021. That was the only money that had gone into Raspberry Pi. So the whole of Raspberry Pi was 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 bootstrapped off that money, and, and probably about thirty or forty thousand pounds of donations from high net worth individuals in Cambridge who thought it was a good idea. Um, uh, so that's kind of that's kind of fun. And then we did a forty five million dollar funding round in the autumn of twenty. 21, a couple of absolutely fantastic uh, supporters of ours put in $45 million into the trading business, effectively bought new shares in the trading business, and the trading business then ceases to be still a very much a majority-owned subsidiary of the foundation, but no longer a wholly-owned subsidiary. But that's the only that's the only external money we've actually we've actually brought in. In terms of how my job has evolved, I guess it's evolved from kind of overseeing everything, every aspect of Raspberry Pi early on, through to very much that focus on the commercial and engineering side uh, of it, which is natural for me because I'm a, I'm a software engineer originally. I'm a engineer um, um, subsequently um, and so kind of having the opportunity really to focus in on uh, on that aspect of things has been great we found ourselves a fantastic chief executive for the foundation Philip Colligan who we uh, who poached from Nesta the National Endowment for Science Technology and the Arts in the UK he was deputy chief exec at Nesta and we and we he joined us in 2015 uh, I think he was about for, for, for the kind of the early years of Raspberry Pi actually the engineering function was big and the charitable function was small uh, and so Philip was probably only at that point about the fourth employee uh, of uh, of the foundation and then grew that very very quickly uh, through both organic growth and acquisition to about 150 uh, or 
organic growth and merger to about 150 people. So that's the foundation in terms of headcounts now rather bigger um, than us. And he's sta- he stayed with us. I mean, he's been with us. He will have been with us eight years uh, um, this year. And he, he, he's, he's transformed it into, I think he's transformed the foundation into something that we didn't envisage when we started. The existence of the Raspberry Pi computer was supposed to be the contribution, right? When now we have a foundation which, um, you know, obviously we continue to ensure that Raspberry Pi computers exist, uh, but the foundation does much more. A conventional is, it's, it's kind of conventional is not the way conventional sounds disparaging. It's not really the right word, um, but they do much more regular charitable the sorts of things you would imagine an educational charity would do they train teachers and they create they train teachers and they run clubs and they create courseware and things like that and so it's kind of wonderful to have both that original strand of the kind of anarchic strand of just making sure general purpose computing is everywhere and then also to take some of the money you've made from that and then go and do more traditional interventions in the space but but for the most part the day-to-day of both the charity and the of, of the charitable foundation and the and the trading company are funded by obviously sales of hardware right Yes, that's that's that, that's right. Yes, yes, which is cool, right? We made a lot. We made we sold fifty million computers, and we don't make very much money when we when we sell it. When we we don't make very much profit when we sell a Raspberry Pi. But if you if you sell fifty million of them, then then, then you do make a bit of money. I, I was going to say, like the idea, like it sounds like a lot of money when we talk about it in normal human terms. But the idea that you bootstrapped a company that sold fifty million computers on a hundred thousand dollars is kind of kind of shocking, right? Like it's it's an it's an incredible thing. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, to some extent, it's t- a testament to the business model. Um, for the longest time, we were a licensing company, so uh, taking a leaf actually out of Arms book, uh, we we designed the Raspberry Pi, and we licensed that design and the use of the Raspberry Pi brand, and obviously the the, 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 the community behind it, to uh, two partners who then made Raspberry Pis and, and paid us a royalty. And what, the nice thing about that business is, as you grow a traditional manufacturing business, you, you kind of, it sucks capital in, because you need to fund inventory, you know, you, you're, you're, um, you're, as a we call it the working capital loop expands. You need to fund all of that inventory, component inventory, finished goods inventory, receivables. You know, waiting for your customers to pay. You need money as your uh, business gets bigger, so you suck capital in. Because we were a licensing company, yes, uh, the unit economics were a little bit less good because you're only getting a royalty rather than getting the full margin uh, on the product. Uh, but it does mean you don't need to suck money in. And that's why the foundation was able to retain 100% ownership of Raspberry Pi Limited while it grew. Uh, and that's and thus we're able to devote all of the entirety of the spare money, the entirety of the surplus profit. We were able to devote the entirety of that to funding the foundation rather than having to share it between the foundation and people had come in over time to contribute capital to the growth of the organization. So then the raise in 2021 was to transition off of the licensing? Uh, it was certainly to transition to more of a blended model. We are a much more blended organization now. So certainly uh, last year, really a substantial majority of Raspberry Pi computers were actually made by us or, you know, we commissioned the manufacturing. Nobody makes anything, right? So, you know, we we, we, we paid some people to make it for us. But yeah, we, it was a traditional company with us inside the working capital. That's obviously capital intensive. Also, a certain amount of that money has obviously gone to, to pay for sort of advanced R&D stuff because, of course, we continue to try to make cool new Raspberry Pi things and that's not cheap. It's kind of remarkable to me to just sit here listening to you talk about this because, you know, 50 million units in a decade are, is, a, is a number that like any kind of publicly traded corporation would salivate over, right? But yet you're, you know, you're working with like pretty thin profit margins, like the money mostly is going back into like fairly noble kind of educational outreach and so forth. I mean, I don't, I don't really have a question here. It's just kind of this is almost like a unicorn of an operation to see <laughs> something at this scale that is not, you know, trying to maximize shareholder value constantly 
it's great, right? It's a wonderful, and most of us who are involved in Raspberry Pi have had some sort of business experience before, a more traditional business experience. So I think for all of us, it, it's kind of been a wonderful toy, I guess, you know, just a, a, this experience that no one's built an organization like this before. And it's interesting to see how far we can take it. I mean, we've sold 50 million computers. We fab our own chips. Again, nobody fabs their own chips. We pay people to fab our chips. We design our own chips. You design your own chips. And then TSMC TSMC fab them for us. Um, Just like uh, Apple. Yeah, just just like everybody else. Um, (laughs) uh, And, um, and, and, you know, it's it's kind of interesting to see the, the, the breadth of what you can do within this interestingly constrained environment. Yeah, I think you're probably uniquely positioned to know more about what people are using pies for than pretty much most anybody we would talk to. And I'm curious if there are any things that you were really excited about. I think you mentioned high altitude ballooning a minute ago. Uh, the ham stuff's great. I love the I love the space stuff in general. So I I, I love our own Astro Pi program where we've put pies on the station for, for for kids to run their code on a lot of um european uh, children in europe have done that it's a, it's a european space agency collaboration so that's a fun one i, I love that actually although there are two astro pies on the space station uh, there's a bunch more there are on it in any given day a huge number more raspberry pies on the iss because they get used as payload controllers because they're very robust uh and so often actually we we have no idea how many raspberry pies there are on the iss and we only tend to find out about these uses when we when we when they when they get down mast, so that's kind of fun. Um, what else? I just like all the people who've built businesses around it. I just whether they're resellers or people who make DAC accessories or people who've built it into uh, who've built it into some product that they've dreamt up. Just this idea of enabling entrepreneurship, enabling distributed. I, I, I mean, I love business. I think you know, entrepreneurship, capitalism, business—they're they're wonderfully powerful tools for good change in the world. Uh, and it's wonderful to have had an opportunity to kind of unlock that kind of innovation, which was getting hard to do, right? Um, you know, was was able to walk down to an electronics store and get six five zero two out of a bin um, for about the same price that the biggest company in the world would have paid for a six five zero two, right? It was a very level playing field in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties, and the playing field is not level at all anymore in terms of access to advanced technology. Uh, it's very hard. It's not that advanced technology is expensive for some of these companies. It's, it's just unavailable. And so taking really advanced technology and making it available at a very flat price, you know, the, the thing that characterizes Raspberry Pi is not just the thin margins, but the very flat pricing structure. So yeah, people come to us and say, oh, so Raspberry Pi is uh, $35. How much will a thousand, how, how much will I have to pay for a thousand uh, Raspberry Pis? And the answer is $35,000. I mean, you know, you'll eke out a thousand. It might be thirty-four thousand dollars, you know, but it's not twenty-five thousand dollars or fifteen thousand uh, dollars. And and that's that's something we that that's a commitment we stayed very true to all the way through. And I think it's on the it's it's obviously important from the um, educational side because it means that you're you know, the the people who are at the bottom end of the the volume curve are kids. So you don't want to be rinsing the kids. Um, but it's also the thing that's powered this this kind of community, this ecosystem of innovation uh, around the platform. Well, and, and and just so people understand, I mean, what when you look at what Intel or or Apple or Nvidia spend de- developing a new chip, they're they're looking at billions of dollars in some case over a over a really long period of time. And I'm curious what your like when you're developing a new Pi model. Part of it is that you license ARM, so that so you get a lot of stuff with that licensing cost. But like, I'm curious what you spend developing a new Pi model and what that. Well, remember, most big Raspberry Pi products use merchants, so you use 
effectively merchant silicon. So, so we don't develop the chips that are in the big Raspberry Pis, right? That's Broadcom. So we're not involved in that. When we do the, um, uh, but you know, just to doing the our bit of that work is um, many millions of dollars now. So, uh, um, a Raspberry Pi four was. Uh, I mean, I could go and look it up, but Raspberry Pi four was probably a two or three million dollar program. Raspberry Pi Pico was probably a seven or eight million dollar program because that did have a chip development in it, right? So that has the RP2040 microcontroller wrapped up in it. So it's probably RP2040 is about a five million dollar program just on its own. And then you have the board development and the software development uh, on top of that. So it's only getting more expensive. Uh, I would imagine, you know, we, we are, we've kind of taken a pause on new big Raspberry Pis because of the, well, we focus on just making the existing Raspberry Pis available. But I would imagine that any subsequent Raspberry Pi will be a, would be a more than $10 million effort, even without us, you know, even, you know, without, without a chip development in. Uh, I guess what I'm getting at though, is that the benefit of the, of having the Raspberry Pi is this, as this unit of compute and SOC that you can jam into your projects is that if you want to build a project that needs a general purpose computer, you don't need to do that work and effort. You can just say, okay, we have this thing that has these ins and outs and jam it into the thing that you want to build. And it's a lot more accessible to, to the smaller market. Yeah, we have this. We have this this idea of reluctant hardware companies. That actually, the world was full of reluctant hardware companies when we started, as digital signage companies, thin client companies, people building widgets to go into factories to log data, and um, all these people who were really software companies. They all wanted to be software companies. What their differentiating value was in whatever software stack it was they they provided. But in order to get that software stack, you can't sell people software. It needs something to run on, and the PC was too expensive. And there weren't readily available embedded PCs uh, at a respectable price point, and therefore people were building a little thin client, going to do all the work of going out and sourcing core silicon and memory, and, and bringing up a board, writing a board support, and, and getting an OS port, uh, just so they get to the point where they could then run their application, which was there. And, and that's just so much wasted effort. Um, and that's really, you know, the yeah. What I'm proudest of, I think, in, with, with, with Raspberry Pi's contribution there, is that we freed a whole heap of companies. And so I talked about the boat tail. Uh, you know, now actually you go and you'll see a thin client on the desktop and you know you look at it and it's got a boat tail on the end because it's actually a raspberry pi in a fancy box running somebody's differentiating software application um and that's that's the you know, kind of contribution to the public good not having thousands of talented engineers wasted doing basically undifferentiating grunt hardware design is really a it's, it's a good contribution and i think ranks actually probably alongside in terms of what those engineers can do now they're freed up uh probably ranks alongside the um the educational uh, impact uh, as in terms of in terms of good done by raspberry pi so I had a big last grand question and you've kind of actually alluded to an answer already, but I, I wanted to ask, what emotion do you feel when you hear the words Raspberry Pi 5? Oh, uh, uh, terror. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sadness, sadness in that, you know, um, uh, it, it, the, the sort of progress towards Raspberry Pi 5 has been derailed by uh, all of the challenges, pandemic and post-pandemic that have, that, have, um, that have confronted us. I mean, obviously one day there will be a Raspberry Pi 5. Uh, we've told people it's not this year, and it, it isn't this year. I, I think once we get back into a stock, into a into our traditional super robust stock position with Raspberry Pi four, we'll be in a position to think about it. But it is some distance away. Uh, yeah, these, as I say, they're not cheap programs, and the fact they're not cheap implies that they're not quick because it takes time to spend that much money. But we'll get there, and, and we're lucky that we're lucky that this happened to us when Raspberry Pi four was the um, the flagship platform, not Raspberry Pi three, because of course Raspberry Pi four is enormously more performant and has a lot more headroom in terms of how much 
more performance we could eke out of it by clever software optimization. That, that, that was kind of my follow-up question. The, the, the four to me is kind of the first, like, I, I shouldn't say real pie, but like real computer. You know, I mean, it's a quad core, like good IPC, like it finally has full speed Ethernet and all that stuff. I mean, in a world with no pandemic, do you think the do you think the Pi 4 would have lasted longer than its predecessors, even without all yes. the external factors? Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, I, absolutely. It's the first one that delivered on our dream, really, of uh, no compromises. You can sit down, and we had people, lots of kids did. I mean, we, we had a lot of charitable work getting these out to people in the, in, in, in the pandemic. It's the first one that you can sit down in front of and use as a no compromises entry-level PC. You're not going to run a big CAD package on it, uh, but you can run a web browser. Uh, on it and so so yeah it was it was good that that came along it's good that was available and obviously pi 4 and then pi 400 during the pandemic and it was you know one of the things that sort of certainly sustained me when i was locked in my house was all the pictures of kids getting their pi 4 and then pi 400 kits um these kids who you know we have so many it was so such a crime the the uh, sending all the kids in the country home to work from home and forgetting that huge numbers, I think it was 700,000 households in the UK, had kids but no general purpose computer was just, uh, I mean, it, you know, it didn't create the inequality. It made us all, it reminded us all the inequality was there. And so to the extent that we were able to get units out to a few tens of thousands, we have some great philanthropic support, we were able to get a few tens of thousands of units out to kids mostly in the UK. Just the looks on their faces when they opened the box and it was a computer inside was, was amazing. I think there's no better place to wrap it up than that, uh, yeah. Evan. Uh, if people want to find out more, where, what are the best places to find you? Uh, so raspberrypi.com for uh, Raspberry Pi limited stuff. So engineering uh, and products, raspberrypi.org for the Raspberry Pi Foundation and all of their good educational work. That'll do it for us this week. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks to Evan for coming by and chatting with us and, and being extremely generous with his time. I know he's always really busy. Yes, it was a joy, honestly. I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed every interview we've done for this show. But, you know, the the Raspberry Pi phenomenon has gotten so big that it was it was a real honor to get to talk to him and see that, you know, he's still an engineer at heart. I mean, you, you never take that out of, you know, no matter how busy he is with other you know business and foundation stuff. Being able to get into the weeds on a technical level with him about the stuff that we talked about was just super gratifying. Well, it was, it was interesting to see that he still seemed a little surprised that it's become this kind of juggernaut, right? Which is fun. It's it's. I, I often tell people that, that my favorite part about this show is talking to people in different stages of the open source software lifecycle. And in this case, this is a hardware project that is barely 10 years old at this point, a little bit more than 10 years old, and is contributing greatly to a, a, like a massive number of sectors across the around the world, far beyond what I think they ever anticipated. So you can find out more about Raspberry Pi at raspberrypi.org for the foundation or raspberrypi.com for the board. And that's Pi, like the number 3.14, not yes, pi. the thing that you put in your mouth. PI, not PIE. The other thing I will say is the thing we talked about where Raspberry Pi 3s are now becoming more available. We're, we are starting to see that happen in, in the real world again. So that's uh, if you want to get a Pi, you don't necessarily... A 4s are great. Mm -hmm. If you can't get a 4 at the, at the real price, a 3 is fine for most of the projects that, that we've talked about on this show and on the tech pod in the past. Yeah. 3 is no slouch. You know, even, even if you got an old 1 or a 2 lying around, those have their uses as well. 
Yeah. So this week's episode, as always, is brought to you by Google Open Source. They bring all the power of open source to Google and all the power of Google to open source. You can find out more about them at opensource.google. Thanks, Google. As always, this week's episode was produced by Matt Purdy and edited by Sabrina Hill. Thanks, Matt and Sabrina. And we will be back uh, in a couple weeks with another episode. I think we're going to talk about KeyCAD on the next one. Mm-hmm. We are. See you all then. Bye.